Stephen Pritchard is joining us for Thursday Finance today. And just a little start off, a question to start off with, Stephen. There's been some comments recently by some of our parliamentarians um, about superannuation policy, and um, you're a little bit concerned about some of the things they're saying. Um, yeah, well, a number of the politicians of all parties have had comments recently about superannuation, and, and one doesn't seem to appear to understand the difference between contributions and pension payments coming out of a fund and money going in. Another has no idea about transition to retirement pensions. And, you know, we've got these politicians in Parliament passing legislation, and it's clear they don't actually know the outcomes of the legislation that they're passing. You know, this this raises an interesting constitutional question as to, as to whether this legislation has actually been properly passed and what the correct course of action is for, for politicians who don't understand um, the legislation that's coming before the House. And I would have thought that if they were doing their job correctly, they would either understand the legislation or, or at least the broad general terms and know the difference between a contribution and a pension payment. And, one and being in, one, one being, being out. And, and what the proposed tax rates they're proposing on them are. Or if they don't, they shouldn't be commenting and they shouldn't be voting on the matter. That definitely sounds uh, like a logical conclusion to me. <laughs> <laughs> never mind, um, our leaders, uh, the leaders of our nation, yes, never mind. Let's get on to currencies and commodities. Uh, we're not talking about currencies and commodities just yet, Stephen. No? No. <laughs> Stephen's left all his numbers at home. So how about we talk, well, do you want to start talking about Let's- Self-managed super funds yes. at this stage. Why yes. don't we do that? All right. Okay. So what we're talking about is um, setting up a self-managed superannuation fund. Yes. And and self-managed superannuation funds are the fastest growing category in the in the superannuation industry. I mean, there's basically three major categories: the self-managed superannuation funds. Um, uh, industry funds, and of course, there's the retail funds that are offered by various other. Um, independent retail providers, predominantly the banks um, and the life insurance companies. Um, And and a lot of people these days are looking at setting up a self-managed superannuation fund. Now, what what the advantages, or one of the major advantages people coming to see us or think they want is when they're setting up a self-managed superannuation fund is they want to have control of the money. They want to have control of the money and they think they're going to save money by not paying these fees to the various... um, uh, commercial and non-profit providers. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, now uh, we'll talk a bit about costs in a moment, but but of course one of the one of the disadvantages of a self-managed superannuation fund it, it does involve some work on the um, the the owners of the fund and the beneficiaries. I mean you have to you have to go to the trouble of setting up the fund, which will which will cost you money. Um, you, then you've got to annually do the tax return and have the fund audited and there's all the paperwork and records that you need to maintain um, in between all those periods. So, so um, you know, to run a self-managed superannuation fund properly, I would have thought you need to commit one to two hours a week probably to to to, to, to over the course of the year um, and not every week but some weeks you're going to even want some to, to attend to the matters. I mean, there's things such as the quarterly... Uh, um, instalment to the tax office. Um, if you're paying a pension, there's various bits of paperwork you have to do and make sure the pension's paid out. Um, and compared to that with a, an industry fund or a, um, a non-profit fund, um, you basically just send your contributions in or your employer just sends your contributions in. You get the annual statement once a year or if it's in pension phase, the pension, you know, after you lodge the pension stuff, the pension payment just gets put into your bank account. So, so there is... Um, 
amount of work to do. Now, a lot of that work, yes, you can you can send out to other people to do it. I mean, there's various um, accounting firms provide administration services. They'll help you with the tax return. They'll assist you with the audit. But you know, the more work you're sending out, the more work, the more money that's going to cost you um, to run as well. So, if you're looking at just saving the cost, I mean, um, it's probably not going to be worthwhile. So just um, before we um, we go on with that, uh, <clears throat> or we might go to our market snapshot sometime soon, but um, do you actually have, in real terms, more um, more control over your savings if you have a self-managed super fund? Um, yeah. Um, with with um, a self-managed superannuation fund, you get to decide where to invest. Now, um, uh, what what is popular at the moment is, is these um, limited recourse borrowing arrangements that people are entering into in order to um, put property into their self-managed superannuation fund and borrow the uh, borrow some of the proceeds. Now, um, our kind of view in our firm is that we try to discourage that. I mean, if you want to invest in property, you, you're better off doing it outside of superannuation because you get a larger uh, tax deduction than you, than you do inside of superannuation. And when we've won some numbers, that the strategy doesn't actually work. But, but a lot of people... Um, Want to do that, and, and I, you know, I kind of understand why they want to do it. But um, and then there's other assets you might want to include in a self-managed superannuation fund, or you might want your own um, um, asset strategy. Um, uh, one one client we've got, or a couple of clients we've got, are very conservative, and they only want to hold term deposits in their self-managed superannuation fund. So that's usually quite difficult to do in a wholesale or industry fund. Um, now. One of the other things is you need to to look at how much money you've got to um, start a self-managed superannuation fund. Henry. Stephen, how are you this afternoon? I'm good. It's a bit chilly up here. It'd be good for uh, people selling firewood and stuff, I imagine. I'd imagine it's good for people selling jumpers and uh, all those winter sails that are now on. Ah, yes, down at Myra and David Jones. Yeah, um, I think they've been suffering and there's an awful lot of sails that have come an awful lot early. We haven't even got stock tape situation, so it's going to be interesting to see how all this uh, this weather affects um, retailers. Yes. So, so a couple of interesting things is is Green Cross seems to have sent the the private equity uh, <laughs> people packing, and uh, they're looking to grab a larger market share of the the pet care market. Yeah, I mean, Green Cross was uh, was uh, bid for by private equity, um, and uh, the guys at Green Cross said basically no. Um, and the other day, the uh, the last remaining vestige of this sort of aborted uh, uh, bid was sold into the market by um, by one of the brokers at um, at seven dollars thirty. The stock did uh, bounce and went very hard after the bid, which was around six dollars seventy, and got to um, nearly eight bucks before they um, placed this stock. So um, the company is looking to expand its market. Their biggest competition is the uh, is the supermarkets, really, in in the pet um, care kind of space with all the um, the aisles full of pet food and leads and all that sort of stuff. So um, Green Cross looking to expand and looking to, I guess, prove um, the um, the critics wrong in terms of whether they should have engaged with private equity, taken the money, or tried to talk them up in price. They're now kind of on their own, and no one's got a stake anymore. So it's going to be interesting going forward. I mean, there's a number of these uh, specialist pet shops uh, uh, appear, and they're quite large. I mean, there's there's the, um, the Green Cross one, which is um, the... 
forget the pet barn, and there's yeah. which is the Yarn Duck one, and there's the other one which we kind of go to because that's closer. It is called um, Pet Stock, and they, they've got a, a, a huge range of pet supplies in there. I know it's quite scary. I mean, Green Greencross, I guess, is kind of a bit more um, upmarket because it does include vets and yep. things in the uh, in the business, um, and you know, puppy school and all that sort of stuff. So it's probably a, a more integrated. But yeah, I mean, down our way, there's uh, in Brookvale. Um, there's two of these big stores actually side by side. You've got a Green Cross yeah. and, a, and a Pet Barn, um, both similar sizes, almost side by side. Uh, you know, I think Green Cross is probably the more sophisticated end of the market. Uh, certainly the branding is more uh, professional looking, whereas Pet Barn uses a, you know, a sort of cartoony-like font um, on their signage. So um, just interesting, I guess. But, yeah, two of them both side by side. Mm. Anyhow, they always seem busy um, when I've been They do. There. Well, I think it's one of those things that is relatively, uh, I guess, recession-proof. We tend to spend money, whatever the economy, on our children and on our dogs and cats and, mm. and what other pets we have. So, um, you know, you've got to buy dog food, you've got to buy cat food. Mm. And speaking of buying things, there seems to have been a bit of unrest down at Woolworths Timber and Hardware with with, with uh, some of the members who are, who are franchisees looking at... Um, uh, setting up a new um, buying group, and uh, they've, they've quoted there's some concern over the possible sale of home timber and hardware to a private equity group, and and have, and have referred to what happened with Dick Smith. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's an interesting um, scenario, I guess, that we've got at Woolies on, on July the fourth. I think the uh, the final sort of uh, binding bids are in for the uh, the masters and the rest of their their hardware businesses. They try to extricate themselves from that. But obviously, if you were a franchisee of, of one of these, uh, the HTH, I think, is the, sort of the home timber and hardware uh, chain, you might not be so happy to get a brand new owner that may have completely different ideals, um, targets, profit strategies, etc. In, in a private equity guys, which which tend to be far more aggressive um, and looking for, um, I guess, you know, easy short-term gains, dressing something up, making it look good, and then flogging it back to someone. So I'd imagine that if you were a franchisee, you'd be a little bit concerned, and that seems to be what's happening at the moment. Yeah, that's right. And then, speaking of companies, um, Santos, CEO, has been out um, doing some presentations around town this week, and he's saying that the um, the, the oil industry needs a cost shake-up. Yeah. Well, I guess um, the, the fall in the oil price down to um, below $30 was... Um, kind of the wake-up call for the industry that have probably got a little flat and bloated at you know, $100 oil. Um, since then, you know, the oil price has rallied, but it doesn't take away from the fact that um, you know, we've got these, these separate companies around Australia building massive, massive production um, assets with uh, LNG, whether it's up on the Northwest Shelf or in Gladstone or in Darwin, um, you know, and they're all sort of separate. They've all got different partners. Um, you know, they've all got different contractual obligations into Asia in terms of gas and pricing. And I think he's really saying that basically, you know, that the oil industry really needs to get together because $50 billion projects um, are hard to, um, you know, there's no point in everybody building one. It's crazy stuff. So you need to uh, maybe coordinate a little bit more and share assets and share um, those sort of production platforms and then uh, then source the gas and, and compete on um, other other sort of metrics, I guess. Yeah, there's been. I mean, how many plants have been built at Gladstone? Two or three? Or oh, I think it's yeah, at least. Yeah, I, 
I was going to pop up there next week and build one myself. It's, it's hard to keep uh, hard to keep track of. There can't be much room left at Gladstone. There can't be much. I mean, obviously, and the other you know, the property prices in Gladstone would have gone through the roof and then subsequently crashed as mm. we've gone from you know, building the plants to production, which is uh, certainly less uh, labour-intensive uh, procedure than uh, actually building these massive engineering projects. Mm-hmm. And then, of course. Um, Woodside's come out in the last couple of days saying they're, they're looking for, um, which is, we, we, we'll go on to another point or two about that, I mean, some, some, some script-based acquisitions. Mm. So they're still on the hunt for uh, undervalued oil assets. Yeah, I think they, that boat may have sailed. Um, I think, you know, the Woodside had the chance uh, to engage with Oil Search. Uh, they did make a sort of highly conditional bid uh, for Oil Search, but then backed off and subsequently the world's kind of moved on. And everybody, um, there, you know, there's a bunch of, I guess, blue chip companies out there that everyone's looking at and going, you know, where's the growth? I mean, that, that applies to the banks, it applies to Telstra, it applies to Woolies and, and the West Farmers through Coles, and of course Woodside as well. Um, there's little growth seen in the company, and a lot of the growth options that they've um, they previously kind of uh, you know, signaled to the market in terms of projects like Leviathan and other things in the Browse Basin have all been kind of put on hold or um, or retreated from completely. So the market's really looking for the next kind of growth phase in, in Woodside. And uh, at the moment, the company's got no answers, but at least they're starting to put out there that, you know, they, they can look at things and they, they would look at script-based things and they, they're willing to pay, you know, a cash component of about a billion dollars and all this. But at the moment, Woodside's become a, a high-yielding dividend stock as opposed mm. to a growth stock. Henry Jennings from Marcus Today Financial Newsletter. Back, Henry. Ah, Stephen, you're back. So, so <laughs> we just hope that Woodside is not going on the same adventure that Rio and uh, BHP went on. I mean, Pricewaterhouse has come out um, this week and said they've done some analysis and said that uh, if the big mining companies had adopted a sensible dividend policy, shareholders would have been billions of dollars better off. Um, basically, on the basis that the money would have been paid out to the shareholders and the uh, the mining companies wouldn't have had it to waste. Yeah, I mean, this, this, I mean, it's a big number, isn't it? It's a huge number. Uh, I guess the problem is that, um, you know, during the boom, uh, we can do no wrong, uh, or they think they can do no wrong, and they get carried away on the, um, on, on the wave of, um, of expansion and, and this um, sort of a belief that it's going to last forever. Um, and, that, you know, my ego, and, you know, my company's bigger than yours, and I can do a bigger deal than you. And a lot of ego gets into the uh, equation, and we've seen that a lot of miners, um, you know, BHP, Rio's, rip up a huge amount of shareholder wealth uh, on these acquisitions, and where they should have been paying, as you rightly say, you know, in the good times, the shareholders should share in the uh, in the prosperity and get bigger dividends, and in the bad times, the shareholders should suffer. And at the moment, they, they didn't really share in the good times, and they've suffered in the bad times. And the only people who uh, did well in the good times were the uh, were the management CEOs and, and uh, remuneration structures because they were getting bigger and bigger salaries because the company was getting bigger and bigger because they were doing bigger and bigger deals. Mm. So um, it is uh, it is crazy, um, you know. And in the in the bad times, they should be using the capital they've stored up um, to be buying assets at cheap knockdown prices. But of course, you know they've been uh, been unable to do that because they blew all their cash. Mm. Um, like a drunken teenager in the um, in the good times. Mm. I mean, this this goes some way. This report, which doesn't say so, but it, but it, it goes some way to supporting the 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 the, the, the um, current um, requirement that, that 
shareholders are having wanting companies to pay out dividends and let them decide themselves whether they want to reinvest the money. Well, I mean that's right. I mean, uh, unfortunately for miners, they are they, they're in projects that require huge amounts of money. I mean, we're looking at the LNG a few minutes ago. They require huge amounts of money. They have to build them. Um, you know, it takes a long time to build those projects up. Whether it's a new iron ore mine or a, a driverless train or a LNG pipe, it takes a long time to get it into place. And they don't really know what the um, kind of landscape's going to be when they do. So it is kind of you have to feel a little bit sorry for them, but equally, you know, we have got commodity markets where you are able to hedge production uh, in terms of pricing. Um, and it always seems amazing to me that a big miner would spend, you know, $20 billion on, on producing a product that they have no idea what uh, the price is going to be for that product when they actually get it to uh, production. You think they would use some sort of hedging to uh, ensure the price of the widget is known? Yeah, you would think so. I mean, you know. But yeah, they used to. Yeah, they used, used to. to. Miners used to do a lot more hedging than they currently yeah. do, but uh, yeah. that seems to have gone by the board. Yeah, when they got a great gain to go to spot pricing. Yeah. Anyhow, speaking of going by the board, this, there's this new flat, which I'm actually not sure how you pronounce, Gerva. I think rubbish is the word. Yes, yeah, well, anyhow, it's had a, <laughs> it's had a lot of uh, comments in the media about it um, yeah. the last week, and now, now ASIC and ASX have decided to have a look at it, you know. Um, I, w- I would have thought they would have had a look at it when the prospectus was lodged, not not, not now after the media's out. Yeah, I mean, I was. I, we've had a lot of um, a lot of um, subscribers to the newsletter asking about this one, um, and we, well, I discussed it yesterday on Sky TV on my my usual sort of Wednesday slot, and the, and the company's been saying that they they think they've been uh, subject to the tall poppy syndrome. But as I pointed out, a company that makes a revenue of only a million dollars is hardly a tall poppy. They're hardly even the poppy field, let alone the tall one. Um, this is a music streaming company, and I, I have downloaded the app at times and looked at it, but it's it's very similar to um, existing sort of the, 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 the big the big gorillas in the music streaming business, which is the uh, you know the Spotify's and the and the Pandora's together with uh, you know iMusic now or Apple Music is in there. You know, it's ten bucks a month if you don't want ads, or it's free if you do want ads, but. Um, it really, I mean, they're valuing it at $1.3 billion, according to some reports. They've already raised $185 million in, in funding up to this juncture from 3,000 hapless uh, investors who are hoping this thing is going to IPO. And they're trying to raise a whole bunch of new money, and they've, yet they've only got revenue of about a million bucks. Mm. Um, it's, it seems crazy, and there's been lots of warnings out there from uh, you know, people far more smarter in the tech space than me, people like Paul Bassett, who founded Seek, um, and also the Alassian boys, um, and suggesting that, you know, really the ASX has to have a, a real good hard look at this because the numbers just don't seem to stack up. And the other thing is, aren't, aren't the vendors taking most of this 40 million of cash out as vendor consideration? And, yeah, it does seem that way. And, and not much is going to be left in the company anyhow. No, I mean, if, if you're going to build a, a, a mousetrap to compete with another mousetrap, there's no point in actually producing the same mousetrap, mm. um, costing the same amount of money with the same features. I mean, it's it's very hard for a company like Gavira um, to, um, you know, to, to differentiate itself between Pandora or Spotify if it's exactly mm. the same. They're, they're, they're making a big thing about pushing into India, but, um, you know, really? Um, I don't think, have they got any money in India to pay for this? Um, probably not. Um, mm. You know, and they, it, it just seems to me um, a very... Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an example, I guess, of the, the 
bubble. And we've seen today, um, even today, there's um, another tech company called Nine Spokes, which is uh, uh, listed today. Nine Spokes is a uh, company that provides a, a, a software as an application kind of platform um, that enables small and medium-sized businesses to access the best kind of apps in the world to run their businesses, things that they normally may not be able to access or know how to access from a dashboard. Now, the IPO was done at 20 cents. They're currently trading at 15. Mm. So there you go. There's a, there's a mm. nice, easy uh, 5 cents or um, you know, 25% yeah. off. Yeah. Probably off. Be 5 cents in a couple of weeks. Well, you know, it, it, these things... Um, it, it's a great um, it's a great game because the seed investors are probably in at one cent. Um, they've floated at twenty. Um, I hope that it stabilises between ten and fifteen, and the seed investors that get in at one cent have ten times their money. Yeah, um, right. They're pretty happy. The poor guys that come along, Johnny, come lately at twenty cents. Of course, have lost half their money, but um, that's not really a major consideration for um, for the people behind these things. Yeah, and, and speaking of seed investors and exiting the money, um, ASIC, ASIC's decided now to call in various people who have been uh, associated with uh, the Dick Smith Connects and, and grill them all. Yeah. So that's... Uh, Is there a pun there, Stephen? Are you trying to... I, I don't, are you I, alluding I, to their household product division of Dick Smith? No, no, I wasn't. I, I saw the, uh, the ASIC <laughs> press release, actually, calling people to be grilled. So, <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, uh, Dick, Dick Smith was kind of, um, you know, the pig that had the lipstick, um, you know, and unfortunately, it's it's um, it's been a bit of a, an absolute disaster. The only probably the only winner out of the whole thing, apart from the private equity guys that sold the business, has probably been uh, Kogan, which bought the um, Dick Smith online branding and is set to float yep. at the end of this month, I believe. Um, they've just announced that they're going to do an IPO of the Kogan uh, business, but um, but certainly there's a lot of questions that need to be asked about Dick Smith and how it was. Um, sold, I guess, to an unsuspecting and and maybe uh, hyped up public, mm-hmm. um, and it's you know it's a very well known brand, and which is why Kogan has uh, has been quite keen to get their hands on the on the the good branding, I guess, um, and try and throw off the shackles of the past. Mm-hmm. But it was always a always a tough ask. I think anybody that's ever been into a Dick Smith store and compared it to a JB Hi-Fi store would would see that the problems that they they had just in terms of the. There's a few uh, staff, but no customers. Yeah, well... Well, that's the opposite to Myers. There's customers <laughs> and no staff. Yeah, well, that, that's never... Where if you go into JB Hi-Fi, it's the other way around. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, we'll have to go. But just one last thing is uh, ASIC seems to have done a few things this week. They're going to have an investigation to Arium now with the with the receivers, and they've... Uh, they're now pursuing NAB, and I think they've started uh, lodging documents in the court about um, NAB's involvement in the bank bill alleged uh, rigging yeah, scandal. Like, so we've got three banks involved now. It's only a matter of time before Commonwealth oh, Bank yeah, yeah. Are, uh, are named as well. Um, yeah, so it's uh, ASIC seem to finally be getting um, some, some teeth. I, I could have said something else. Um, and they've also recently had an insider trading conviction uh, recorded against Oliver Curtis in, in a very sort of high-profile um, society insider trading case. Um, so he's awaiting sentencing, but that's not going to be uh, not going to be pretty for him, I would imagine. So, yeah, I mean, ASIC uh, seem to be maybe because they're now um, uh, better funded, or just maybe they're on a, on a bit of a roll. But um, certainly, they seem to be uh, seem to be starting to get a little bit more teeth in their um, in their bark, shall we say?
Yep, yep. Okay, well, on that, we'll uh, we'll come back to you next week, Henry. Excellent. Thanks, Stephen. Have a great week. Okay, thanks, Henry. Stephen, I'd like you to talk about the Kidman station. It seems, uh, of course, we had the Chinese buyers trying to buy it and that wasn't so acceptable and now... There's uh, some locals trying to raise money. Um, yeah, it's, 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 this is a bit of an ongoing saga. And, and the China, various Chinese companies were trying to buy that, S. Kidman and Company, um, which has a collection of um, cattle stations. I think it's the largest landholder in Australia. And the, the government, first of all, decided that um, because one of the, one of the um, cattle stations joins a sensitive military base to knock that back and then they decided just before the election to knock it back on national interest ground so so basically um the government said that you know the, the land mass is too large to sell to to one foreign buyer and you know if they want to sell it to foreign buyers it has to be split up so then um they've called another round of tenders to buy the kidman station and, and um Damacon, which is a, a property investment company uh property investment manager syndicator slash syndicator um has teamed up with someone else who's i can't recall their name but basically i uh, split the business up uh Damacom's going to buy the the real estate or is attempting to raise sufficient money to buy the real estate and some other company whose name i can't recall is actually going to buy the business and the livestock um it's an interesting concept um but one one needs to think about this um y- you know i can't understand why they're not just going to float Kidman and Co on the stock exchange? I mean, it's an iconic brand name. I would have thought that that if if the thing was sold at, at the right price, they'd have easily they would easily raise the three or four hundred million thereafter um, um, to 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 list the the company on the stock exchange. And I, I don't understand why that 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 course isn't being followed. Um, and, you know, the only, the only suggestion I could make is that the, 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 they think they're going to get a higher price by selling to the Chinese or, or offshore investors than they would if it was listed on the stock exchange. So uh, the, the only comment following on from that is just be careful about um, whether you're getting a, a value for your investment here and, and you know, do some due diligence and, and ask, ask uh, Domacom. I mean, there's another listed um, cattle company, Australian Agricultural Company. Um, compare the price of, 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 of the what the task of the Kidman business with what, what Australian Agricultural companies on the stock exchange. And we can all go out and have a piece of Australia. <laughs> yeah, well, you can you, you can buy um, Australian Agricultural meats uh, sold and, uh, under the um, 1824 brand name. You see it at various restaurants. and So they're trying to turn their, their product from a, a commodity into a, into a branded type meat. And I notice one of the supermarkets now sells King Island. Yes. Sirloin or something, yes, or other. Yes. Yeah. So there's a number of companies now trying to turn the, the humble piece of steak into uh, uh, some branded uh, product, which of course they can extract a premium price for. Yes. Well, we were talking about self-managed super funds yeah, earlier about... on and uh, advantages and disadvantages. Let's get down to some of the nitty gritty. Um, how much money do you need to well, start? Well, I mean, this this is a topic of some debate. The Securities Commission's put out some guidelines saying that, you know, you need two hundred thousand dollars to in to start a self managed superannuation fund. Um I, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I mean you need to you need to look at um Yes, you you, pro- you probably need two hundred thousand dollars in the short term to, to become cost effective. But but you know if you if you've got a hundred thousand now and you want to start a self managed superannuation fund and over the next two years or so you're going to put in sufficient comp, uh, uh, contributions to bring up up to two hundred thousand um, dollars. I, I wouldn't let the Securities Commission's um, guideline 
persuade you as long as you're aware of what costs are involved in running the thing i mean i think it's up to up to you to make the decision as to as to whether it's suitable for you um and and you know if you're just looking at um, there's a number of retail, uh, what are called wrap products around, um, which you can get almost the same investment choice under those without having to do the administration that's involved in a self-managed superannuation fund. So you really need to, to look at what alternatives are around and what you're actually trying to achieve um, before you decide that's right for you. Now, members, um, a self-managed superannuation fund, of course, needs one member, um, but you can have a maximum of four. Um, and, and why the four number's chosen, I don't really know, but that's what the legislation says. What about trustees? Um, trustees. Now, uh, self-managed superannuation funds, the, all the members have to be a trustee, um, and, and that's so that people are basically supposed to look after their own, own money. Um, now, they either have to be an individual trustee or a uh, you have to have a corporate trustee. We, we always recommend a corporate trustee because if someone passes away or wants to leave the fund... Um, it's a big problem in transferring all the assets from the old individual trustees to the new individual trustees. Whereas if it's a corporate trustee, it's a very simple matter of just changing the um, changing the uh, directors and or shareholders. Mm-hmm. Uh, annual costs, I would have thought um, to run a self-managed superannuation fund, you're looking at um, about um, $2,000 um, plus a year, plus probably five seven hundred dollars for the audit so somewhere around you need to budget around three thousand dollars uh set up costs i would have thought also around the two thousand dollars so you need to do a bit of costing now the on a cost point the larger the self-managed superannuation fund becomes um that's where your cost effectiveness comes in one that's got um um $10 million in, for example, and there's a few of those around, might only be costing you $15,000 a year to run, whereas if it was in a, a, a commercial fund, you'd be paying considerably more than that. Um, one of the important things you need to look at when you're swapping from a retail or industry fund to a self-managed superannuation fund, you need to look at your insurance coverage. Um, under, under recently ruled new guidelines for self-managed superannuation funds, the trustees have to consider whether you want insurance coverage. If you do, you need to make sure that you've got the insurance coverage in place in the new fund before you cancel the insurance coverage in the old fund. You want to make sure that something doesn't happen in a period when you're not insured. The other strategy you can adopt in this is leave sufficient money in the old fund just to keep your insurance coverage going in that because sometimes the rates in those old funds are a lot cheaper than what you can obtain as a self-managed super fund coverage. There's a lot in self-managed There's a lot in self-managed superannuation fund. A lot to consider. Um, We can come back to them. ASIC's got quite a good website on on a lot of things you can look at. So it's a good place to start. And that's Thursday Finance for today. Thank you, Stephen Pritchard. And Thank we'll you, be Jane. Back next Thursday after the midday news on 2NURFM.